The following podcast is presented by Ensign Services, Inc., a company engaged in the business of providing contracted for administrative and back office type support services to post-acute healthcare clients. Ensign Services provides accounting, human resources, compliance, legal, risk management, information technology, training, construction support, and other such miscellaneous services to its clients. These contracted for services are available to be utilized at the sole discretion of its clients. References within the podcast to the company and its activities, as well as the use of the terms we, us, its, our, and similar terms used during the discussion are not meant to imply that Ensign Services, Inc. or the Ensign Group, Inc. has any direct operational control, supervision, or direction of the independently operated post-acute healthcare entities. Um, well, the mic levels are working well. All right. Things Everything's are, working. Everything's and working. Ryan, I, I wish everyone could have heard uh, <laughs> our intro. Like, I have tears in my eyes just uh, just as we're trying to get going and some of the a, inappropriate humor that was being used. Yeah, it was a great intro. I'm, I'm glad we weren't recording it, though. Um, <laughs> it's good. And they didn't, they didn't get to hear my rapping. No, they didn't. Uh, that's unfortunate because I was planning again on doing a little remix for the yeah. annual meeting and, and playing that on your as you're like a walk very, on sort of. I'm a we'll very to, good rapper. We'll have to come up. I've I have had proof of that, but yeah. it's been deleted now. So, but ironically, I'm not a good rapper with a W, and it's Christmas you're not, see, time. I'm an excellent I, I'm really? an excellent rapper with no, a W. I rap like a like a three year old. Well, thank you for inviting me back again yeah. today for uh, another podcast. I lo- love getting the chance to, to record these with you. And I'm really excited about today's um, topic that we're going to be talking about. And, and I, you know, based on the, the topic and the time I think it's going to take to really get yeah. into it with you, I, I think we'll I'll probably, probably need to divide break it up this over up a, couple. a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so today, really, to start things off, we're going to go back to our foundations, uh, really our first focus book, which was Good to Great. And from what I understand, we didn't really develop our culture from the book, but the book did solidify what we really already had believed in. Yeah, that's that's I mean, I think that's important to understand. We didn't read a book and say we should do that. I think we had a set of beliefs and principles. And when we read the book um, and and I I say we this was really before uh, I came in. But when when they read the book. They really felt like this is exactly what we're trying to establish. We believe in these principles that it's teaching. So let's let's start with a quote from the book. Great, and and, and it's it's kind of an introductory thought. Few people attain great lives in large part because it's just so easy to settle for a good life. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of companies never become great, precisely because the vast majority become quite good, and that is their main problem. Good is the enemy of great. And that is one of the key reasons why we have so little that becomes great. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a powerful <laughs> quote. It because really when, when you're yeah. good, yeah. that's like that's a comfortable thing. It is. And, it is. and so the book is all about the difference between the majority of the organizations that are good and those few that make the leap to greatness. No, that's, that makes a ton of sense. And, and like I'd mentioned earlier, this is going to be a, a tough, tough podcast to, yeah, to, to cover in, in at least one. So it it's will, not like it will. one principle. <laughs> exactly. There's a, a number of different principles that we really, really want to get into. Um, and so let's maybe start with the premise behind Jim Collins' Good to Great book. Yeah. And, and maybe, you know, understanding how it came about helps us understand why there's so many different topics. Because... 
Collins explored what made great companies great and how they sustain that greatness over time. They didn't start with some theories and then try to validate those theories. They started with, okay, who made the leap and let's find out what they did. Mm -hmm. So they found 11 companies. They weren't looking for 11 companies. They just found 11 companies that hit their criteria of jumping from good to great and that held that greatness for at least 15 years. Okay. So they backed into the data. Does that make sense? Yeah, it seems like a great not, place not to theory. start. Right. A lot, most authors have a theory. I want to write about it and I'm going to give supporting data. Right. They said, we're going to tell you about these companies and let's find out what we'll they did. The data, and they yeah. were surprised about a lot of things that, that they discovered. One, for example, was that none of the celebrity mm -hmm. or famous mm -hmm. executives that we see on TV and that we think, oh, they must have been on the list because they're so amazing. <laughs> I can't they, think of a few off the top of my head. Yeah, but I mean, they, they weren't on that list. The good to great leaders always had what he called a paradoxical blend of not just professional will, but personal humility. Well, let's 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 really start with that concept because it seems like it might be one of the most important ones. Uh, the concept yeah. of, of truly of level five leadership and its combination, like you had just said, of of professional will and personal humility. Yeah, I, I agree that uh, you know we all want to be level five leaders, right? But let's do a quick revisit of the first three. So a level one leader is is what they call a highly capable individual. I always mm -hmm. call them technicians. Okay, they're really good at doing what they do. Right. Right. A level two is a contributing team member. They're good at doing what they do, and they contribute to others. A level three leader is what you would call a competent manager. Okay. Okay? So not just good at what they do and helping others. Right. They can actually manage. We'll use the, lead ma the word manage and not lead other people very well. Now, what we really want to differentiate is the level four leader, which is an effective leader. Okay. And a level five leader... And, and, and the real difference between a level four and a level five leader, level five leader is capable of building enduring greatness through that, what we described, the paradoxical blend of personal humility and, and professional will. Mm -hmm. um, and I say paradoxical, and I think they say paradoxical because we tend to think that it's these leaders with the big egos that... You know, they're so competitive right. and they want to beat out other people and, and then that drives their success. And I think that's why – and that that's very common in level four leaders and why they're so successful and well-known while they're there. But the level five leader they discovered, and this was surprising to them, shunned the attention of celebrity hmm. because their ambition wasn't for themselves it was for the organization. See, hmm. a level four leader makes their organization great, and it is great because that level four leader is there. They tend to be the famous ones. In fact, when they leave, and I've, I've heard this, I've heard this with leaders within our organization. When they leave, they validate their greatness because things fall apart when they leave. <laughs> yeah, Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. When I was there, look at yeah. how things were. And when I left, everything fell apart. And that's, but level five leaders, yeah. their organization continues to be successful after their departure. Why? Because they didn't make it about themselves. They made it about the mission. So, I, I used to be a yeah. teacher and I had a, a professor, a, a, a teacher trainer, one that trained me that said, Clay, there's, and, and it really made me think of a level four teacher. Everybody thinks, oh, they're so great. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love when, when they come in and teach. A level five teacher is one where the, the students say, that was amazing what we learned. 
Who is the teacher again? <laughs> right. They're passionate about the subject now, yeah, not just because the exactly. teacher is teaching it. Now, it makes a ton of sense. I mean, how does that happen then? I mean, how, how can a how can a leader truly affect things after they're gone? I, I would have to say, and you'll, you'll, you know, in the upcoming annual meeting, we'll have a focus on this. I know Christopher is focused on this a lot in this organization. Level five leaders are passionate about succession planning. Hmm. So just stop right now and ask yourself as a leader, am I obsessed with, with succession planning? Am I trying to create more people all around me and hmm. multiply myself and develop them into greatness? Identifying and developing people while they're in the organization, they set up their successors for success. Hmm. Level four, almost like to be followed by weak successors. <laughs> right. right. Because in contrast, that makes them look it so helps good. helps validate the success that they were having. Because and, of the, and, yeah, and what yeah. Jim Collins said hmm. is that that he and his, he called, he called, what did he call him, his Minions, not as minions, it's something <laughs> like that. that he, I, I, I haven't, I've read the book about three or four times, but I haven't read it in a while. But he said they discovered that level five leaders are compellingly modest. They mm. never are talking about themselves, uh, preferring to direct attention. I'll tell you this. I'm going to be very vulnerable yeah. in this. I recently had a conversation with Christopher and I said, I was almost jokingly said, hey, what's something that, that annoys me about you? And, and we were, <laughs> but, but, you know, we he cracked his few jokes and then said, hey, sometimes you say I when you need to be saying we. And I thought, <laughs> like, Ouch. And I was like, oh, dude. <laughs> Ow, and I, you know, I, I'm trying to notice that and look for that because, mm. again, a level five leader is compellingly modest. They're, they're, they love to direct attention to other individuals or, or to the organization as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. And this is where, if you've heard the term, I mean, hopefully in these podcasts, you're going to learn a lot of different terms that you hear and you're like, where does that come from? Well, one of them is the window in the mirrors. A level five leader, when things go poorly, they look in the mirror and they say, hey, that's on me. I, I was not effective here. I, I need to be better at doing that. A, a level five leader looks in the mirror for poor results, never blaming others, never blaming the environment. Oh, it's just the state right, we live in right. or the, the facility I'm in or whatever environment or bad luck. Level five leaders never do that. But when things go well, he or she looks out the window to give credit for success. Like when things are going well, man, I'm just... I'm lucky to have this team and I'm mm -hmm. lucky to have, you know, Janet by my side who's doing this. And so that that compelling modesty, we've got to be caught. One, it's genuine modesty. Some people right. give fake <laughs> modesty, modesty, right? right? Oh, it's I'm just so my terrible, team. Yeah. <laughs> but then really they're thinking I'm awesome, you know, or whatever. Right. But don't misunderstand that modesty for weakness because, because combined with that modesty is that unwavering, ferocious resolve, mm -hmm. almost stoic determination to do whatever it takes to get things done. They are not meek and like, well, hopefully this works out <laughs> right. and you guys are the best and I'm not very good. That right. That's sort of the fake modesty. They, they are obsessed and they are competitive. It's just not to serve the ego. It's to serve the organization and others. So the professional will that you're talking about leads us to a phrase um, that, that comes from the book. And I think it's yeah. important for people to understand. It's a phrase that I really hear <laughs> constantly and and really heard since I joined the organization disgusting. a long time ago. Yeah. Like, not to me, and I'll <laughs> tell you why, but it's the, the, the phrase is <laughs> rinsing your cottage cheese. 
Um, and so I'm a you know long distance cyclist, yeah. and I eat massive quantities of very low fat cottage cheese. So yeah. I've, it's been and you tempting. like cottage been, cheese. I love cottage cheese. Have you ever rinsed it? I'm te- I'm tempted, tempted to. to I'm tempted it. to. Um, I've seen it. What I've is, seen it rinsed. It looks really weird. I'm sure it does. It looks like little, I don't even know what it looks like. I, I won't. <laughs> what does it really mean then to rinse your cottage cheese? Yeah. And I, you know, I, you know, the story of David Scott, yeah. right? And yeah. and you would probably appreciate this being a, being an avid cyclist. And um, he won the Hawaii Ironman triathlon six times, wow. which is just unheard of. It's, it's unprecedented. Incredible. And. So so here's the the story and and I think sometimes we misunderstand rinsing the cottage cheese what it's really trying to teach us we we think of it as expense control and I've got to mm-hmm. you know cut off all the fat and, and I guess that that's kind often of relates how I to he, that hear it referenced right to, yeah. that's usually how it's referenced so so but here's what the book says despite having a training schedule that had Scott burning 5000 calories per day Burning, which is crazy, five thousand calories. Now I can eat five thousand. <laughs> no calories problem. I've seen you. Yeah, I can. Uh, I, I but, vouch for your calorie eating but, prowess. But 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 burning five thousand. I know, like at the end of a really hard workout, and I look at the machine, and I'm like, what? <laughs> Two hundred fifty calories. Fifty seven <laughs> calories. What the heck? You know. So what he would do is he would take a dry paper towel and rinse his cottage cheese to remove all the fatty liquid mm-hmm. around the outside. So, so it's already a health food. Right. He's going sort of that extra mile. Now, the question is, because he was asked, you know, what's the key? And he says, well, I rinsed my cottage cheese. <laughs> Did this actually help him win an unprecedented six times? Right? Like, right. was that right. really the key? And the answer is, I don't know. And his answer is, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But rinsing your cottage cheese is being so driven by your professional will Mm -hmm. that you're willing to do it just in case it might help. (laughs) I can appreciate that. Does that make sense? Like, you know, these people that are so obsessed, the the Kobe Bryant, uh, you know, he would tell the stories of you're up at seven training. I was up at four. Right, right. And I those three hours is what was was going to make it. So I was going to beat you. Right. So so here's a quote from the book, level five leaders are fanatically driven, infected with an incurable need to produce results. They will sell the mills, which is a story from the book, and and hopefully you'll read the book and learn what that means, or fire their brother. That's a horrible quote. If that's what it takes to make the company great. (laughs) My brother would also agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, that's right, Jared. You out there? Be careful. They, They are willing to rinse their cottage cheese in case it might help their performance. They will do... Whatever it takes. Now, don't misunderstand that. They're not doing anything illegal. They're not doing anything unethical. They're saying, I'm going to do whatever it takes to give me that advantage just in case it might work. No, it's impressive. And I like how you used, you know, Kobe Bryant. Those are like some obvious, easy public examples where you hear people have just done every possible little thing they could could possibly do to be successful at at whatever it is they're trying to be successful at. Those stories are really impressive to hear. And and what other real surprises did they discover in the study? So... They expected, and I think we would expect, to find the extraordinary charismatic leaders with a compelling vision, strategy, or direction that everyone wanted to rally around. They expected the level five leaders to be full of that charisma. I've got to tell you, I when I interview people, 
Mm-hmm. I tend, after reading this so many times, <laughs> right. and I tend to almost be turned off by, by excessive charisma. charisma. <laughs> like, I tend that's to really like the quiet if you're about ready to interview and you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> you, you know, like, that's, Tone that's your charisma a tip. down a little That's touch. right. Uh, because it, it's not just having that person that everyone wants to rally around. The truth is, and th- this was what was super interesting to them, and it's interesting to me. Mm-hmm. Most of these level five leaders had no idea where to drive the bus. That's really interesting. They came in, they're like, I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> Instead, really interesting. they first got the right people on the bus, mm-hmm. the wrong people off the bus, and then the right people helped them figure out where to drive it. That makes a ton of sense. So, so for level five leaders, and this is an important principle from the book, who questions must come before the what decisions. It, it's it's first who, then what. I've always said we're a first who, right. then what organization. We we are obsessed about the who. I feel like that's my job, is to make sure that in an, our entire organization, we're getting the first who right, bringing them on, training them, making sure that, that the who is right. So before vision, before strategy, before organizational structure, before tactics, if you focused on the who first, then... When you have to adapt to a world that's changing, right. you've already got the right who. Right, which makes you're sense. Not, you're not getting somebody to to plug in to fill with that Who's preset good at that strategy. One set thing. Right. That makes so right. much sense. Right. So to me. you have it, it. It makes it so much easier. And and look, th- th- one of the things they say that I love. Now a lot of you know a lot of leaders might be listening to this thinking, how do I motivate my people better? It says when you when you are obsessed with first who then what, figuring out how to motivate your people largely goes away. And then finally, you can never have a great company if you have the wrong people. Great people, or excuse me, great vision without great people is irrelevant. So, so great companies are rigorous about the first two. And, and I'll even, if I can, just, just there's, they kind of came up with some rules of this. No, these, these are some things that they discovered. Great. Um, and I guess I should preface this by saying, you know, our organization, we never give growth goals. It's sort of interesting. Right. For a publicly traded company, you would expect, okay, we're going to grow by 15% this year. Right. We say, uh, we don't know, right. zero. Require X number of buildings. Right. We say when we find the right people, we will grow. So that's our model. So, so rule number one, when in doubt, don't hire. Yeah. That's, this is, that's like, so true. It's such a true statement. 95% of us listening to this right now do not follow this rule. Right, right. My, myself included I, running facilities, I've hired out of desperation, but we cannot hire out of – if your revenue growth rate outpaces your people growth rate, you won't be great. Hmm. Does that make <laughs> no, sense? It does. You, you, you can't – when in doubt, don't hire. Have the discipline to say no to the wrong people. And if you have that patience – I do know those that do have that discipline to say no. Pays dividends. Yeah, it pays dividends. I see, yeah, it's, it's ver- I see it's, that advantage. I'd say of, of all the lessons here, that's one of the most challenging because it's it's very, very hard to stay disciplined. When yeah. You have so many different external pressures coming on you to have to fill a seat and, and making sure it's the right person is just... Ugh. So here's another one that's a little more brutal. Uh, when you know you need to make a people change, act. Uh, the moment you feel like you need to tightly manage someone, you've realized you've made a higher – in fact, the certain questions they asked, if if they came in – knowing what you know now, mm-hmm. if they came in and applied tomorrow, would you hire them? <laughs> if they quit tomorrow, would you be disappointed? When all of these things are no, right. you've got a problem. Yeah. 
there. And you've got to be rigorous on that first who, then what. And then the last thing they say is put your best people on your biggest opportunities, not your biggest problems. Hmm. Um, so so it's you don't send your best people out to where the – it's where are your biggest opportunities. And I, I do feel like as an hmm. organization, we, we've done that pretty well. Um, many companies think that you're supposed to put their best people in the bad situations to turn them around, Mm -hmm. but building opportunities, they say, is really the only way to become great. So I want to jump in, um, on the thing they discovered that was really the biggest surprise to me. And and although it sort of matches up with the book multipliers and how the optimists can be accidental diminishers. Yeah. Don't be an optimist. Sometimes in interviews, people will say, my greatest strength is I'm, I'm an optimist. optimist. I'm like, oh, oh, oh not. Give me some books. <laughs> <laughs> but, but really, but before we learned that, um, we learned in good to great that optimists die. So yeah. <laughs> be a pessimist? I don't, what's yeah, that right. tell? I don't. No, um, uh, being optim- an optimist is a strength if, it, if it's tempered, right? And that's, uh, but he did. We, we learned in good to great the optimists die in multipliers. We learned the optimists are uh, accidental diminishers, right? Right. right. Um, we've talked about this in prior podcasts. I can't remember what the names of those podcasts were, but, but you can go back and look at these stories, but I, I think it's worth sharing again. And it's the concept of being willing to, to confront the brutal facts while maintaining an unwavering resolve in the, the ultimate results, right? right? So, right. so what you might call optimism, we could rephrase as that unwavering resolve, but You've got to be willing to confront those brutal facts. Right. And that's – it can't just be with a great attitude, we're going to succeed. That burns people out. <laughs> right. And that burns people up. They need acknowledge that the, the reality things are difficult. The challenge, yeah. Okay. So two stories that I love. Let's, okay. let's start with the first story, okay. uh, a leader that, that I love in history, Winston Churchill. So if it's a Winston Churchill story, I just want to pre-warn you. Yeah. As we know now, Kathleen yeah. is a no, Churchill historian true. savant. So yeah. she, she'll, she'll sniff out anything untrue and be sure to let what us was, know. I think so. it was the Never Give Up story that she I forget. It's, there's been a few. I don't know. Let's get another lawyer to review these. Uh, <laughs> she knows so too much about, she stops, about She's kind of our Cliff Clavin. Well, actually, that's not true. And, it's a little Cheers reference for that. you old timers. Yeah, that was it. That was, All right. that was a good one. All right. So the first stories of Winston Churchill. Uh, you know, talk about confronting brutal facts. Mm-hmm. You've got some brutal facts. <laughs> We've got a, a man named Hitler wants to take over the world, thinks that a certain group of people are evil and the only way to save the world is to destroy them. I mean, things looked extremely bleak. Um, there were some leaders that wanted to, you know, trying to appease mm-hmm. things and, and they were learning that appeasing things wasn't, wasn't working. Mm. Um, so Churchill, when things started looking extremely bleak, he maintained an unwavering faith. And again, this is different from optimism right. that not only Britain would survive, but they would come out of this a great nation. He believed that mm-hmm. he believed that in his soul, Right. So when things were most bleak, Churchill said, this is his quote, we are resolved to destroy Hitler and every vestige of the Nazi regime. From this, nothing will turn us. Nothing. We will never parlay. We will never negotiate with Hitler or any of his gang. We shall fight him by land. We shall fight him by sea. We shall fight him in the air until with God's help, we have rid the earth of his shadow. Like, I want to follow No, Churchill man, that's, right yeah, now. I get that. I get that. That's Sign a, me such up. an inspiring in. <laughs> speech. It's so, crazy. Churchill was obviously an inspiring leader. But, but 
Yeah, here's the thing. Remember, I just told mm-hmm. you charisma alone, that, that that's not right. what a level five leader is. Inspiring rhetoric alone would not have done it. Like, you can't just give a great speech and then, you know, mm-hmm. his, right. his charismatic personality was not going to win the battle. So along with his unwavering resolve to succeed, he knew he had to be willing to confront all the brutal realities that surrounded him. So in the early days of the war, he established an entirely new department, one, one that didn't need to follow the normal chain of command, didn't, didn't have all the bureaucracies. Mm-hmm. Um, he called this department, this is an amazing name, the Statistical Group, <laughs> right? Like John Albrechtson and his team are going right, to appreciate right. that name. That sounds like really what John Albrechtson's team is, is the, the statistical office, the right, statistical right. group. This th- their main function was to feed uh, Churchill continuously updated, unfiltered, <laughs> brutal facts. That does, sound, that does sound like it. That's awesome. Not going through politics. Right, right. Not going. Well, don't don't present it to him this mm-hmm. way. Let's make it look mm-hmm. a little no. Unfiltered. This many facts. buildings are on fire. This many planes have been shot down. These many soldiers have been killed or captured. Just facts. No politics. No sugarcoating. Uh, just raw, hard data that would point them where they need to go. Uh, Churchill said this. He said, I had no need need for cheering dreams. Facts are better than dreams. (laughs) That's just uh, unbelievable. And and John, I hope you have your whole team listen to this because this is is what I feel like your team's mission largely is and and so crucial to our success. No, I totally agree. I can see the parallel there. That's that's awesome. Uh, I really can't imagine the type of uh, leader he must have been to have uh, taken the stance that he did throughout the war and and, uh, helping to lead his nation. As one who has run facilities that were really struggling and like started to lose faith. Right. I can't right. imagine. I, that's when I realized, man, I am a weak leader. Like I've got to strengthen myself. Yeah, I, to be able to confront those types of brutal realities and and uh, and do it in such an inspiring way. What, what's what's the other story you had? So the the other one now uh, is is one of my favorite stories. The the story of Admiral Stockdale. I actually have a friend that just graduated from the Navy, and she's now assigned to the the Stockdale, uh, the, the SS Stockdale oh, in, cool. in, in, out of San Diego. So he was the highest ranking military officer in the Hanoi Hilton, the, the Vietnam POW camp, and he was tortured over 20 times in his eight-year stay. Um, he confronted the facts of no wow. prisoner rights. Uh that the war was going to go on for a while. Like, right. Hey, this isn't ending next week. Right. Um, he, he was a leader to his men inside the camp with or without his title. Right. He wasn't right. an authority in the right. camp. Right. He had no authority in the camp, but right. he was their leader. Mm. He was their Why? Right. He developed methods to help the POWs deal with torture, uh, find, find ways of communicating with each other by tapping on things because they were all in isolation. Wow. And that's, you know, one, one of the most brutal, you know, those solitary circumstances right. can be some of the most brutal, brutal punishments. And after his release, he became the first three-star officer in the history of the, Navy, in, of the Navy to earn both aviator wings and the Congressional Medal of Honor. So despite all of that, his story was a really dark one. He's right. the one that said the optimists die. So, you know, sounds like well, an interesting pessimistic yeah. person. But okay. I see where that almost, comes from, His story is almost hard to read. You'd almost wonder how he could survive these circumstances without becoming depressed and discouraged. So he was asked later on in an interview how he got through it. It might have been a 60 Minutes interview or something like that. And this is his quote. He said, 
I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. But then he was asked the big question. So that sounds like an optimist. Yeah. (laughs) Right? But then he's asked the question, who didn't make it out? And Collins thought he would probably have to ponder this question deeply. (laughs) uh, Instead, Stockdale said, oh, that's easy. The optimists. <laughs> so, so again, he just, I, it sounds like Hitler was optimistic, but but it, there's something different, right? And, and and you know, he's like, wait, what? Didn't like, what are you talking about? I thought I thought you were just expressing an op. He said, no, the optimists, they were the ones who said we're going to be out by Christmas, <laughs> right. and Christmas would come, got it, and Christmas would go. They they they'd say. We're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come, and Easter would go, and then Thanksgiving, and it would be Christmas again. And he said the optimist died of a broken heart, just constantly just hoping that a good attitude would get them there. After a while, he, he continued, he, he said this, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality whatever they might be. See, that sounds like resolve to me, like a perfect definition of resolve yeah. in a lot of ways to me. Yeah, but that brutal facts, he's, such the, the, book, part, he's yeah. the book, he's, and he says, all good to great companies began the process of finding a path to greatness by confronting the brutal facts of their current reality. Hmm. Good decisions are impossible without an honest confrontation of the brutal facts. Boy, that sounds great, Clayton. Thanks very much for for sharing the, uh, the, the insight so far and looking forward to picking things up in the next podcast.